today on Against the Grain. What would, what should make a society anarchist? What political visions, which individual thinkers could be called anarchist? I'm CS. San Francisco State Professor James Martell discusses his new book, Anarchist Profits, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. How close to a truly anarchist society did Spain get in the 1930s? What about Rojava, the largely Kurdish autonomous region in Syria? Is Rojava an anarchist polity? And what can we learn from Papua New Guinea about anarchist and collective politics? James Martel takes us to these places and many more in a new book that examines anarchism in relation to what Martel calls archism. He defines archism as a form of politics based on rule and hierarchy. Martel's book Anarchist Prophets also looks at figures, prophetic figures, philosophers, and others who had a vision of moving away from archism toward anarchism, toward collective and horizontal forms of politics. James Martell is professor of political science at San Francisco State University and the author of eight books. His new one is titled Anarchist Prophets, Disappointing Vision and the Power of Collective Sight. When James and I connected recently, I asked what he meant by anarchism. I think there's different ways to think about anarchism, and I think I'm using it in a way that doesn't really conform to the way that it's usually thought about, so I should, I should clarify what I mean. Um, anarchism is a Western tradition. Um, it comes from the thought of people like Bakunin and Kropotkin and Emma Goldman. And it has, so it has a very particular, very Western kind of sense to it. And the term that I'm using for anarchism is um, probably a, a much broader. Um, I, I take it from, the, from a book, a really good book by uh, a scholar named Maya Ramnath, who said that um, she thinks of anarchism with a small a as opposed to anarchism with a capital A. So capital A anarchism is like the Kropotkin, you know, kind of the thing that we usually think of as anarchism. Small a anarchism is more like just um, ways of life that people have all over the world, um, kind of horizontal forms of community, uh, self-organized ways of being together, um, which has economic and political and social manifestations. So for me, um, one of the key points I make in this book is really anarchism is just about life. It's, it's about human life when it is not organized and taxonomized and you know, determined. Um, so it's a much bigger concept than just that Western tradition of anarchism. And you juxtapose the word profits to anarchists. Prophets, as in P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, the the prophetic figure. Well, I associate that word with uh, religion, with religious figures, and um, I'm guessing a lot of anarchists, or most anarchists, or almost all anarchists are, are most anarchists are not not necessarily uh, friendly toward uh, religious doctrine. So, uh, tell us about that that use of the of the term prophets. Yeah, that's, you're absolutely right that anarchism, at least as a Western practice, is, is extremely hostile to religion. So it does seem like a weird juxtaposition. But the reason that I make that juxtaposition is because I believe that what anarchism opposes, namely archism, which is a word that I'm trying to promote as widely as possible, is ultimately a theological concept. And the only way to break with archism is not just kind of a, an easy secularism or just to announce that you don't believe in God or anything, but rather to fight this false theology of archism with a kind of anarchist counter theology, which is why I think we need anarchist prophets. Uh, acknowledging all, the whole time that that's an idea that's going to make a lot of people quite uncomfortable. And am I correct that you derive archism from anarchism and that the an and anarchism you see as a kind of a negation of archism? Exactly, exactly. In fact, 
it's really uh, bringing in the concept of archism that changes, for me, the meaning of anarchism as well. So both words kind of change each other. Once you introduce the term archism, I think um, it sort of helps to sort of show what anarchism is as opposed to what archism is. And archism is, you know, basically the mode of power and organization that the whole world suffers under right now. It's, it's above all, I would call it a, a metaphysics of hierarchy. It's a, it's a way of imposing hierarchies on all of life. And may, perhaps most crucially, it determines those hierarchies from some privileged position which exempts itself from those determinations, right? So there's some way that archism is always looking from some standpoint, and from that standpoint, it's judging and ordering the world. This has a theological origin in forms of both Hebrew and Greek ideas of prophecy. So there's a, there's a religious origin to it, but in the secular terms, it's become something quite different, which is basically just inventing truths that it projects onto God or nature or the state or whatever. And, and then those kind of projections come back to haunt us in these kind of uh, rules and determinations that we have no way to get at because their origins are completely fabricated. So who invents these archist truths? Are we talking about archist authorities of some kind? Exactly. Um, like one term I like to use is archons, which are people that um, see themselves as kind of earthly representatives of these kind of higher truths, whether it's a religious or a, or a secular uh, version of these higher truths. So basically, you know, elements like the modern state, the law, capitalism, these are all kind of forms of social and political and economic organization. And they tend to have at some on, on some top level these these people that determine what they're going to do and how they're going to function, and so those people are you know are the ones who are sort of benefiting from this privileged position where they can sort of you know determine everything else and and yet remain undetermined themselves. Talk more about the relationship between archism and capitalism. To me, capitalism is probably the sort of the most naked and true face of archism because it is, um, it's really where archism kind of, where the rubber meets the road, like where the real kind of tyranny of archism uh, announces itself. Because, you know, um, in other forms of archism like the state um, and the law, you have at least a kind of a formal kind of uh, amelioration. Like, you know, in liberal states, for example, they say that we're all politically equal, even though we're not. And, you know, in the law, we're all treated in a certain way, even though we're not. Um, but capitalism doesn't even bother with those kinds of, uh, it's, it's more stark and, and in a way, a more honest manifestation of archism. And I also think it's probably the, a more fundamental form of archism um, because I think, you know, we're potentially going through a period now where we're surviving the death of the state. But that's that's exactly why I think using the word archism is important, because it's, it shows you how this system can survive the death of any one of its components. Um, I do think that the hardest thing for archism to give up on would be capitalism, though. And I think that's the thing that it holds on to most tenaciously. Tell me a little bit more about your conviction that archism ha is theological, is a theological phenomenon such that to speak of anarchist theology in a sense is important? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, the reason I think that archism is theological in its origins is um, when you look at, for example, the biblical prophets, by the way, some of whom were quite subversive to governments. Um, so I'm not saying anything about these traditions per se, but rather the way they've been adopted for political purposes. But in those biblical stories, you have a prophet who gets a visitation from God and sees things that no one else can see, right? Only the prophet can see them via their connection to God. So their words have a kind of an unimpeachable source that then must be obeyed, right? And I look specifically at, at um, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. You know, at one point God says to one of them, like, what do you see? And they explain what they see, and God organizes the world through that sight. God says what that means and how, and how oh, kind of a politics is to be affected from that sight. And, and also in Greek, uh, in the Greek, ancient Greek world, there was also a prophetic tradition, which I think has had some influence on modern archism, um, which similarly had um, these kind of 
uh, oracles who kind of, you know, like at Delphi famously and also at Dodona who would sort of convey truths from the transcendent realm that none of us could see. And therefore they had a kind of a, a real power, uh, an interpretive power over the world that was very important politically. So that's to me the sort of theological origins of, of archism. But I think as it evolved, it sort of left behind any actual theology and it has just become the theology has just become a way for to put this really bluntly for political and economic leaders to sort of come up with a wish list of what they want and they project that wish into like a blank screen of god or the cosmos or nature or whatever and it returns to us in this alienated form and then we just have to do what it says you know um, it, it organizes everything and this is again why it's sort of theological it organizes not just people politically and economically but time and space so that like some spaces are better than other spaces you know like the white house is better than my house or your house and uh you know kim kardashian is better than we are and you know the president is better than we are and the future is better than the present you know everything is organized everything is submitted to this to this um, metaphysics of hierarchy that's james martell he teaches political science at san francisco state university we are talking about his new book anarchist prophets disappointing vision and the power of collective sight it's published by duke university press I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, sort of the, the distaste for hierarchy, for top-down pronouncements, for top-down organization is something that is characteristic of anarchists with a capital A, isn't it? I mean, you don't have you could be just a, a classical anarchist and and feel very strongly about archism in the same way that you do absolutely and i mean i i i recognize that my connection to that tradition a hundred percent uh all i'm really trying to do is to sort of try to extend um my understanding of anarchism to sort of the human context as a whole and not simply sort of this kind of european tradition um because i think to me, what anarchist prophecy really is about is the opposite of what archist prophecy is about. So if archist prophecy is seeing things that no one else can see and having secrets and access to information that no one else has access to, anarchist prophecy is about collectively deciding what we see and sort of acting from, from out of that. So it's, it's a completely alternative, an, a, another way of seeing, which I think human beings have done and continue to do throughout our, our history. And that, that is a source of permanent opposition to archism. Um, whether it's the way the Western anarchist tradition has sort of described it or in all the myriad other ways that it's, that it's also happened. Well, your book addresses a lot of things and I want to go into a few of them. Um, you have a whole section in your book about Spanish anarchism. So this is anarchism in Spain, uh, sort of a decades-long experiment, decades-long experiment, not just the 1930s, with anarchism in Spain that culminated in the Spanish Revolution, which, as many people know, met its violent defeat by fascism, by fascist forces in 1939. Let's start with uh, terminology. Why do you insist on calling what happened in the 30s, the Spanish Revolution and not the Spanish Civil War. To me, the name is very important because the Spanish Revolution hasn't been recognized as a revolution. So by not calling it a revolution, it doesn't sort of have that status. And it simply seems as like a uh, kind of a, of a fight between um, liberal Republican Spain and fascist Spain. But to say that, so that's the Civil War, right? But to say that kind of overlooks the fact that there was this unprecedented social, political, and economic revolution um, that happened amidst all of that. Um, and I think in a way was really the catalyst for the Civil War in the first place, because um, when Franco started his, like, you know, his march from, from uh, North Africa, um, the liberal government was initially very, very like weak in terms of its response and was basically prepared to, to lose. Um, and it was the anarchists, especially the, the anarcho-syndicalists uh, through the giant uh, anarchist union uh, that dominated, uh, you know, whole sections of, of Spanish workers um, that organized a, a real response. And that's that sort of then forced the liberal 
Republican government in Madrid to sort of start fighting. Um, so the two the two events, the revolution and the civil war, are very interlinked, but they're kind of t on two separate registers. And I think it's important to sort of acknowledge this this revolution because if you don't, um, then there's only one kind of revolution. There's like the communist revolutions, you know, or there's liberal revolutions. But the anarchists don't get to have a revolution unless you you call it that. And how thoroughgoing was the social revolution in Spain in? Uh, the 1930s, how would you characterize it? And would you say that it was predominantly or exclusively anarchist? Well, one of the things that distinguishes anarchists, I think, from many other political forms um, is that there's a, a greater tolerance for diversity, and that includes diversity that isn't anarchist. So unlike many other revolutions where sort of one way of being was forced onto everybody else, um, because that itself is sort of redolent of archism, right? There's one way to do it. There's one way to be. There's and and it has to be everywhere and all the time and you know at, over every inch of territory. The anarchist model is much more piecemeal. So you had like anarchist collective farms side by side with capitalist ones, and you had um, a lot of experimentation even within anarchism. And that's one of the ways that anarchism reflects the fact that it's horizontal rather than vertical because it allows for this huge uh, diversity of different ways of doing it. And it's open to all of those. It doesn't insist on one way of doing things, which I think is itself kind of the heart of, of what anarchism is, which is a, sort of a celebration of various ways of life without trying to force a one-size-fits-all model on them. Was anarchism initially brought to Spain by someone or something, or or was it in some sense um, indigenous to the Spanish landscape? I think it's both. I think I think the terminology and some of the ideas um, came from abroad. Um, they they took in some ideas from some French anarcho syndicalists. But I think it was also an indigenous movement because uh, Spain had a long history of resisting kind of local chiefs and leaders and um, had a kind of a, a indigenous anarchism to it that was very much kept in as part of the anarchist the Spanish Revolution. Talk more about anarcho-syndicalism. What does that mean? I take it syndicalism refers to um, labor organization. Yes. So anarcho-syndicalism is, uh, is an idea where, uh, where unions become the kind of prime mover of, of anarchist politics. And the key weapon that the anarcho-syndicalists have is the general strike. Um, so that the huge anarchist union, the CNT, that dominated Spain at the time, um, would engage in general strikes, which is a cessation of all labor. And there's a few elements that really distinguish these kind of anarchist strikes from the kind of strikes that you and I are probably used to in the United States and in Europe today, because those kind of strikes that we have are kind of um, bargaining and negotiating and threatening a kind of uh, a place for workers, uh, an improved place for workers within a capitalist system, right? So we ask for better wages, we ask for this, we ask for that. The Spanish anarchists were not interested in negotiating with capitalism. They wanted to to kind of overthrow capitalism. So th they didn't have bargaining teams. They would just come up with a list of demands that was generated from, uh, you know, workers' councils, and it was take it or leave it. And if it wasn't accepted, there was a general strike, you know, so so that they would refuse to engage in capitalist activity. Um, and and really engage in direct action, which means like act as if capitalism was already overthrown in order to actually overthrow it. This unwillingness to compromise with capital, uh, th that's really interesting, right? Because we think about negotiations, we think about uh, collective bargaining. Um, how successful were they with this sort of militant tactic of just saying, look, it's, it's you know, our way or the highway? I, I think they were incredibly successful. And in fact, you know, one of the kind of key features of this revolution was, as I said before, that there was no sort of orthodoxy to enforce. So there was a kind of a tolerance for capitalist models if, if some of them wanted to stay capitalist. But you, what you saw was that the anarchist models were so much more successful from the workers' perspective that it became very clear that no worker would actually voluntarily work in a capitalist organization when they could work in an anarchist one, right? In other words, when workers could be in control of their own 
work and they didn't have managers and administrators hounding them, which, you know, archism is a completely parasitical system. It lives off the body of like the living and it just sort of, you know, takes, it takes all the credit uh, as if we needed it to exist. Like workers need management to be able to function. Um, professors need administrators to be able to work in a university. Uh, people need politicians to, in order to have a, a society at all. Otherwise we'd all be killing each other. All of those ideas are based on kind of the, the, some kind of inherent weakness or um, insanity or, you know, or chaotic nature of people when they don't have these structures on top of them. And I think the Spanish anarchists proved without a doubt that when people are left to their own devices, they do great. Um, not only did they successfully come up with like these um, methods of organizing themselves economically and politically that had nothing to do with the state or the market, and, and which became incredibly popular as they were sort of seen as an alternative. Um, but, you know, the other idea that, uh, you know, there's that famous quip by Oscar Wilde, like the only problem with socialism is that one doesn't have enough free evenings. So the vision that we have of what anarchism would look like is all of us at endless boring meetings, talking, talking, arguing, yelling. Um, that to me, that vision comes from within a archist society when anarchists have no power. So uh, leftists in general, when you don't have no power, of course, all you're going to do is talk. But when they do have power, as they did in the moment of the Spanish Revolution, they got so much done so quickly. It was like a, a complete radical transformation of all of society virtually overnight. So the whole idea of this kind of drudging, droning, you know, <laughs> waste of time is, is completely erroneous when you look at the actual practice of what anarchism looks like when it is not confined by archism. James Martell is my guest. He's professor of political science at San Francisco State University. His books include The Misinterpolated Subject and Unburied Bodies, Subversive Corpses and the Authority of the Dead. We are talking about his latest book. It's called Anarchist Prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, Disappointing Vision and the Power of Collective Sight. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. So the CNT, this was the main anarchist union, the National Confederation of Workers. You write that the CNT and the anarchist movement were effectively one and the same. Now, when we think about labor unions, uh, maybe in this country, we think about labor leaders. We think about uh, people who are calling the shots. You know, the rank and file comes along and, and has to approve agreements, right? Approve pacts with capital, with the employer. Um, was there a kind of leadership within the CNT? And if not, how was, how were any instincts toward what you call leaderism rebuffed or avoided? Yeah, that's, that's really the central question. You know, it, it shows the ways that archism is so uh, pernicious it, it's so subtle it's so seductive like you'll think even in an anarchist situation you can see archism imposing itself through these leadership structures right so leaderism was something that the anarchists themselves really worried about and tried everything they could to avoid in the in this union in the cnt um so for example um leaders were not paid. There was no such thing as a professional leadership. They had to actually be workers. And they, you know, it was, it was deliberately a single union. That was a very important idea so that um, no one sector could dominate or, you know, no one sector could sort of have its own agenda separate from everybody else. Um, and the way it worked was all the separate workers' councils would confederate and they would kind of, ideas would kind of go up the food chain. And to some extent that was successful for a while. But, you know, the one thing I've changed my mind since I've written this book, I used to think I was an anarcho-syndicalist, and now I don't think I am anymore, because I think that ultimately it was the union form that did them in. In other words, uh, it was an opportunity for archism to re reassert itself, right? This kind of leadership view where they know something that nobody else knows, that they have access to information that nobody else has, versus an anarchist form of, of seeing, which is um, collective and, you know, horizontal. Um, that tension ultimately did in the anarchists and um, Franco's assault, of course, is what officially did in the anarchists, right? Plus some perfidy from communists and liberals, you know, they, they, they had enemies from all sides. But I think what ultimately did them in 
was this exact dynamic. The very thing that they feared the most was leaderism. And I think leaderism was what did them in because despite all of their attempts to avoid it, uh, the leaders of the CNT did betray the revolution and they kept hesitating at key moments when they should have gone further into anarchism, right? They, they sort of compromised and made deals and, and this and that. And, and at some point, four of the ministers joined the government, which was like a death blow um, to the whole movement. And, uh, and once they kind of sold out the, the movement, there was no movement. You know, that, that, was the, that was the problem because by putting everything, all the eggs in one basket, the CNT, when the leadership of the CNT sort of like became corrupted in a way by power, by leaderism, the whole thing went, went crashing down. You write in your book, Anarchist Prophets, that if anyone can claim the mantle of anarchist prophet for the Spanish Revolution, it is Buenaventura Duruti. What should we know about this gentleman? He's, I, I would say he's as good as it gets in terms of uh, kind of a heroic anarchist figure. Um, he was very, very, very concerned that his own um, authority and his own popularity and fame, because he was a, like a, you know, a rock star among anarchists, did not actually lead to him corrupting the revolution. So he was very careful, even though he was, there was a lot of hero worship about him. He always insisted on, you know, um, giving back that power because you know one one argument that i make in the book is that charisma itself which is this idea that that you know leaders have this kind of magic that you know that people are attracted to is itself stolen from the people right it's it's theirs you know the, the leader claims it as as their own but it really belongs to the people so i think derudi tried very hard to give back all the charisma that was attributed to him he would always say the love you feel for me is really the love you feel for yourselves you know and so you know, uh, he was killed relatively early in the in the whole process, so he kind of got to be perfect in that sense. I don't know what would have happened ultimately, but you know, one of the great paradoxes of the book is that I say that you, sometimes you need a transitional figure from archism to anarchism, and sometimes you have these figures who kind of hold collective sight for themselves. Right? They, they as individuals hold the collective sight that everyone else doesn't realize that they have. But there's always a danger in that figure because they can easily sell out the very collective site that they're trying to promote. And I think Derudi did a very good job of not doing that. Um, and I, I imagine that even if he hadn't been killed, he might have been able to, to, to continue to do that. But, you know, again, because of the subtlety of Arcus' theology, um, that desire for hierarchy, there is a way that even a perfect person like Derudi isn't perfect enough. Like j just the very fact of having a hero is in some ways a danger to the kind of horizontality that anarchism insists upon. Right. You write that hero worship is one of the bases of archism. Exactly. So when anarchists start to look like archists, which happens so readily and so easily, even like being a perfect anarchist makes you an archist, if you see the paradox there. Um, that's that's exactly what the Spanish anarchists were up, were up against. And Derudi himself thought about this a lot. Um, and he insisted that the CNT be purged of even the anarchist leaders such as himself. He, not purged, but he didn't want to have any political influence. You know, he wanted to sort of he wanted to sort of make sure that the uh, CNT didn't f fall into the corruption of leader of leaderism. But paradoxically, he was a bit of a leader himself to do that. And that's where the where, that's where things get complicated. I'm speaking with James Martel. If you've joined us recently, you might not have heard James's definition of archism, what he considers archism, and that is a form of politics based on rule and hierarchy, on phantasmal authority structures that supersede and replace any particular or horizontal and collective forms of politics that I, that James referred to as anarchism. I'm reading from James's new book, Anarchist Prophets. Disappointing Vision and the Power of Collective Sight. Let's move on to the Rojava Revolution. You spend a good section, a good chunk of your book on Rojava, and this is uh, northeastern Syria where there has been a, sort of an autonomous uh, Kurdish, I was going to say state, but uh, you, you stress the fact that a lot of these people are anti-statists. Let's start with uh, Abdullah Ojalan, I believe it's pronounced, uh, it's spelled O-C-A-L-A-N. How would you, this is a guy who um, 
Well, a very dangerous thinker in the minds of uh, a number of governments. He's, uh, I think, he's in solitary confinement in Turkey. Uh, how would you describe his politics? So um, Ocalan started out as a kind of a classic Marxist revolutionary, but I believe after he was arrested and he came across uh, the works of many figures, including a uh, New York-based uh, anarchist named Murray Bookchin, uh, but not just not just Bookchin, um, but he sort of started to take on a more anarchist mode of um, of thinking, um, and he denounced a kind of Kurdish nationalism in favor of a kind of a cosmopolitan anarchist confederated model, which is more or less what they are trying to produce in Rojava today. Um, so it's so um, one thing about the Rojavan example, which is great, is it's contemporary. I, I think they and the Zapatistas in Mexico are probably the two best examples of what I would call like, you know, modern day anarchism. And, um, you know, one of the things that's good, I mean, I hate to say this, but that's good about Ojalan is the fact that he's in jail and in solitary confinement means that he cannot interfere with the kind of confederated model that he sets up, you know? So in a way, it's like a it's it's like an ideal situation from an anarchist perspective that the, the leader, who is in fact the leader, isn't able to sort of exercise any actual power, and that sort of keeps the model kind of working. So for me, the, uh, you know, the transitional figure, the anarchist prophet, who leads towards anarch you know kind of wider anarchism has to go away be in jail be killed or something because their ongoing presence is itself a form of hierarchy that is sort of corrupting to the whole purpose of this transition in the first place which makes me think about your the title of your book anarchist prophets and uh, i wonder if you ever uh considered the term anarchist anti-prophet Yes, I mean it is it is a form of anti-prophecy ultimately. Um, it, it's a it's a kind of an issue of how do you get from A to Z? Like how do you get from from you know full archism to anarchism? Sometimes you need a transitional figure, and sometimes you don't. I think uh, in the Spanish case, the collective nature of things was such that. It, it could have happened that they could have done this almost without any kind of leadership, and in fact, that would have been much better. Um, in the case of Rojava, I think the role of Ojalan is so key that it probably couldn't have happened without him and his ideas, that it would have remained a kind of a more garden variety Marxist nationalist kind of movement. So in a way, I think the Rojavan example is, for that reason, more imperfect. And I think the, the manifestation of anarchism that you get in Rojava is also quite imperfect. Like you have, uh, for starters, Technically, it's still part of the Syrian state, and the Syrian government has Baathist offices, you know, in these towns. I think in terms of capitalism, there's there's plenty of capitalist practices. I think they're more focused on getting rid of the state rather than getting rid of the market, although, you know, in theory, they're against both. So it's it's a very kind of motley version of, of anarchism, but it's still a, a an extant kind of model that has lent itself to allowing for a much larger degree of anarchism than you usually find. So in that sense, I think it's it's a great experiment still. So as I understand it, we can't really talk about anarchism in Rojava, again, in this uh, northeast part of Syria, without talking about two things, which are democratic confederalism and the commune. What can you tell us? Those are those are related concepts. Um, the commune is like the kind of the basic unit of of Rojavan society, and it sort of um, highlights the way that the local is the kind of the basic political piece, rather than the state or you know some kind of higher administrative structure. So um, there is a parliament in Rojava. There are there are and there's this, this political party, the PKK. So there are hierarchical parties at at work too, but. In terms of democratic confederalism, the idea is that the basic unit is the is the workers' council, which is very much like the model, the original model of the Soviet Union. The Soviets were supposed to be workers' councils, you know, and the and the society was supposed to be a confederation of workers' councils that would kind of go from the bottom up. Of course, that's not ultimately what happened, but um, so it's 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 sort of that same idea to sort of um, organize in small groups that then create spokes councils and then they kind of collectively come up with ideas and then those go up the chain and, you know, um, decisions are made, but they start at the ground and they work their way up. 
I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. James Martell joins me, M-A-R-T-E-L. He teaches political science at San Francisco State University. And he's got a new book out by Duke University Press. It's called Anarchist Prophets, Disappointing Vision and the Power of Collective Sight. We have links to that book and to James Martell's faculty page at SF State on our website, againstofthegrain.org. You know, there's so much in this book. I want to move on to a, a really interesting section of your book, among others, about Melanesia and the movement to resist Western power in Melanesia. And Melanesia is, as I understand it, in the southwestern Pacific Ocean, includes Fiji, Papua New Guinea, and Vanuatu, among other regions. You spend some time describing the Melanesian worldview, and I think this is important because you were talking earlier about how archism, again, this form of politics based on rule and hierarchy, has a kind of metaphysical basis, comes with a metaphysics. So uh, this, I think, is sort of uh, your understanding of, of the Melanesian, perhaps metaphysical challenge to archism. What are the main features, the principal features of the Melanesian worldview? To me, the key feature of Melanesian um, theology, if you will, is that there is no space for the metaphysical at all. Like the Melanesian worldview is entirely material. So um, so human bodies, the human soul, spirits, they have concepts of all these things, but they all exist tangibly and physically in the world, although sometimes they're not visible. Um, and this is critical because um, there is literally no place to put the archist perch Right? There's, no, there's no outside, there's no transcendental realm, there's no beyond from which the world can be judged and ordered. Everything happens within the world. And that denies archism this like critical purchase place. So that when the Melanesians encountered these colonial powers, such as in New Guinea was the Australians, um, and the Australia, and they spoke, they had missionaries who spoke of God and you know the afterlife and 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 then they had a secular version of that in terms of like you know um, uh, becoming more more like the Australians themselves or whatever you know um, it was all put in very racist and hierarchical terms. The the reception of that on, by the Melanesians was not to sort of imagine some future utopian far off perfect world, but rather to imagine that the only way this could manifest was tangibly in the world. So they expected to become as rich, materially wealthy, and powerful as the Europeans. And when it became very clear very quickly that that was not going to happen, their response was a, ver a very radical rejection of the very premises of, uh, well, of Arcus premises, including both Christian and capitalist ones. And here, are we talking about the, the cargo beliefs, the sense or the belief in some sort of a material reward for certain behavior for um, certain conduct? Exactly, exactly. The cargo belief system um, was is normally sort of seen in very pejorative terms uh, by Western, uh, you know, anthropologists and stuff. And, and in general, they, they, tend, they used to call them cargo cults, um, but I think cargo beliefs is a better term for them. And the whole idea was that the Melanesians were, you know, crazy because what they would do is they would sort of start to act like westerners they would um they would line up they would blow whistles they would write things on pieces of paper they would they would do all the things that they saw the their colonial overlords doing and it was seen as kind of like something foolish to sort of believe that if they did all these things that the gods would appear with all this cargo as they called it all these material goods would come come out of airplanes basically um, but the way I think about this, it's the opposite. It's, it's the Melanesians are the realists. They see how much, how many material goods the Europeans have, how they, on the other hand, have nothing, and how the Europeans have no intention of sharing those goods with them. They, they see right through all their talks of the afterlife and in a better world, and, you know, we're teaching you to become more like us, so in the future you can be this and that. They, they recognized immediately that that was a scam. And it's the Westerners who believe in immaterial things that don't exist, right? They're the ones who believe in afterlives and, and utop future utopias and stuff. And, and so the, it's really the Melanesians who are being more realistic. And so in their imitation of what the Westerners are doing, they sort of 
expose the inner theology of, of archism. They show it as a series of ritual practices, which is what it is. Um, and their demand for material reward is, um, I think, exactly right. That, you know, that's what they were promised. That's what they should get. Yali was a man born in the early 20th century, raised on the Rye coast of Papua New Guinea. You write that Yali became a prophet of resistance to Western power and control. How so? Well, he started out as very much kind of conforming to Western beliefs. Um, he wasn't particularly interested in, in the spiritual and indigenous practices of, of New Guinea. Um, but as he kind of rose through the ranks, um, he became increasingly disgusted with what he saw as like the lies and the false promises, both of the missionaries and of the colonial administrators. Um, during the uh, invasion, the Japanese invasion of New Guinea, um, many of the of the local prophets turned against the West and sort of sided with the Japanese. And uh, Yali stuck with the Australians um, and actually almost got killed. Uh, as part of his resistance to the Japanese and had this miraculous escape from this town and the, of his fellow Melanesians. So um, people started to attribute these, these powers to him. And so simultaneously, as he sort of saw that the, that the Australians were lying and they weren't going to give him anything, and he became kind of this venerated figure by his fellow New Guineans, he started to sort of um, amass a kind of a, a political power. Um, and what was interesting was, as far as the Australians were concerned, he was doing what they wanted. He was sort of, uh, you know, uh, organizing Melanesian life according to colonial administrative purposes. But what he was actually doing was sort of allowing the reassertion re of traditional belief structures and practices um, and um, at the same time kind of challenging the Australian point of view, so that he became a, a quite a resistant figure, and, and in a way, you could say what he was doing was hiding in plain sight. He he sort of played the part of a local administrator, but in fact, he was sort of overseeing a kind of a uh, an anarchist uh, ferment that was sort of bubbling up against the the West. I see. So it wasn't just uh, kind of an anti-Western, anti-colonial position, but also uh, very much, in your opinion, a, a horizontal collectivizing tendency that he wanted to promote in uh, the people around him? Yes and no. And here again, we come to that same paradox that I was talking about with Darudi and with Ojalan, which is that he did exploit his position for his own personal gain to some extent. So he was a, a bit of an archist in his own way. Um, but what he permitted despite that was the articulation of a kind of a collective belief system and practice um, you know that kind of coexisted with his own kind of archist tendencies so so even though he himself sort of profited from this and did a lot of things that were not were not particularly horizontal uh, the very fact that he sort of turned his back on Western beliefs allowed for his community to sort of express their own collective thought which had been completely repressed for a long time Sum up, if you will, uh, what lessons we can learn from the three uh, sort of historical, although one is very much current, examples we've discussed. The Spanish Revolution, the Rojavan Revolution, and the uh, case of Ayali and uh, Melanesian resistance to uh, Australian power, to the church, to Christianity. What do these instances these case studies tell you about anarchist polity's ability to fight off archism, to counter archism, to ward off archism, to create a real alternative on the ground to archist priorities of, of hierarchy and top-down control and undemocratic decision-making. Yeah, I, I think all three of the stories have some, some lessons they can teach us, both in terms of what to do and what not to do. I think the most important thing is that they happened at all. And I think one of archism's great um, conceits is that it is both inevitable, irresistible, and there is no alternative, to quote Margaret Thatcher, right? So, for example, in liberalism, a lot of people will readily concede that liberalism allows for a lot of racism and inequality through capitalism, 
but there's no alternative, right? There's nothing better. And I think what these three systems showed is there is absolutely an alternative. And it's not a utopian alternative that lives in some pie in the sky. It's actually something that people do all the time. Like we always engage in collective acts of politics and economics. It's just that we don't always realize it because archism steals all of the credit for that and claims that it's anarchism that's chaotic and violent, whereas in fact it is archism that's chaotic and violent, right? Anarchism is really about self-organization. It's about how we organize ourselves collectively. Um, so just the fact that these revolutions occurred at all, and that's also why it's important to recognize them as revolutions, shows that we are not doomed to archism, right? And that in fact, archism has an unexpected vulnerability, which is the fact that it's based on lies and nothingness um, really collapses very quickly in the face of actual political practices that are not based on lies and nothingness, but are rather based on collective decisions, right? And on what we do together. We, we make up our own truths together rather than sort of export them into the air and sort of have them come back and dominate us. So I, I think that alone makes them very worthy of study, right? And, and it's very encouraging that this not only could be done, but has been done and is being done as we speak. I think the, um, the more negative lesson that I would take from all three is both how insidious and how dangerous archism is and how readily it can reassert itself, right? Like, you know, as I was saying, like, um, even after I finished the book, I've sort of moved away from anarcho-syndicalism because I realized that the Spanish Revolution was the best possible case for really trying to defeat leaderism once and for all, and it didn't happen. So I, I like I become interested in the in the autonomous movements in, in Italy in the 60s and 70s who were like, you know, I think it, maybe they were responding explicitly to the failures of the Spanish Revolution and seeing that the union structure even itself was too dangerous and too tempting to reassert archism. So the, I, I think there's some version of that also is true for both, uh, you know, the Rojavan Revolution and, you know, we could call it the Melanesian Revolution. Like in all of these cases, um, there was a danger that the very leadership that brought these revolutions into being could sort of end it because of their own personal position. And I think uh, any future anarchist revolutions needs to be very cognizant of that and to, by all means possible to have no leadership whatsoever. His name is James Martel. He teaches political science at San Francisco State University. His new book is Anarchist Prophets, Disappointing Vision and the Power of Collective Sight. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, James, we've really only scratched the surface of, of this book, Anarchist Prophets. Can you share with us some of the other things, the other topics that the book addresses? Sure. Uh, the the first part of the book is sort of devoted to three uh, philosophers, uh, Walter Benjamin, Nietzsche, and Hobbes, uh, actually not in that order, and uh, how each of them sort of in their own ways tried to um, defeat the transcendental position from which archism can appear. So that's kind of the philosophical half of the book. Um, the second half of the book, and all the examples we've been talking about are from the second half, um, are a mixture of real life cases, a, a few philosophical cases, and then some literary cases. And so an example of a literary case is, uh, for example, I, I looked at this series called the Earthseed series by Octavia Butler, who's one of my favorite writers. It's a science fiction novel, two science fiction novels, The Parable of the sower and the parable of the talents and i talk about how she offers in that book uh, an amazingly anarchist kind of counter theology um, her book is set in the near future actually it's it's it was written in the early 1990s and it's starting to look so prophetic itself because the society is really falling apart uh, america becomes much more fascist and overtly racist um, a president wins on the slogan, Make America Great Again, which is terrifying. Um, you know, none of this she could have known when she wrote this. But um, in all of that chaos and violence, uh, a young woman, Lauren Olamina, becomes a prophet, and she produces this religion called Earthseed. And the main tenet of the religion is that God is change. And, um, you know, when I first read it when I was a teenager, I loved the book on its own, but I didn't think much of the religious part. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, skip to the, you know, skip to the fighting and all that stuff. But when I read it again for the purposes of this book, I really was struck by how, uh, how she articulated uh, through her character, through Lauren Olamina, how Butler articulated a perfectly anarchist theology. Because if you make God the source of change, 
then rather than being the determiner of the universe and hierarchy, you make God an anarchist, right? So God is the source of contingency and freedom and possibility. And, uh, and, and, and so you kind of go to the root of archism and you, and you flip it and you make it into sort of an anarchist position and everything that follows is, is therefore, uh, you know, it, it, it makes the job of archism much more difficult. And I think that was really the upshot of those two books. Um, I also looked at Frankenstein, which I read as a parable uh, on Mary Shelley's behalf to sort of warn against one of the great promises of archism, because archism makes a lot of promises. It promises health, happiness, you know, this and that. But its biggest promise is immortal life. Um, it sort of promises that we can sort of like leave our human bodies and sort of join these transcendental realms, either literally or uh, theologically or in some way or other, you know. Um, and so Frankenstein is a parable that sort of says, well, let's let's take that seriously. What would it be like to sort of transcend death? And the monster in Frankenstein is so horrible. He's so ugly and he's so violent that it serves to sort of show uh, exactly what it would look like if you could transcend death and how that would be a terrible, terrible thing. So in that way, she removes one of um, Archism's main promises and sort of subverts, goes to its very roots as a as a power of seduction and lies and projection and sort of calls it on its own premises. Um, so those are some examples of the kind of literary uh, studies that I did in the book. James Martell, author of books like Subverting the Leviathan, Love is a Secret Chain, and a trilogy of books about the German-Jewish thinker Walter Benjamin. His new book is Anarchist Prophets, Disappointing Vision, and the Power of Collective Sight. Thanks, James, so much for this book, for your thoughts, and for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you, CS. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>